0: There had been abuse in my family, uh, but it was mostly musical in nature.
1: Are you ready to get your world rocked? Ready! Are you ready to get your mind blown?
2: Do it! One, two, three, four!
3: In the last three decades, sampling has become a vital but controversial component of music's artistic growth. I'm Greg Codd of the Chicago Tribune. And I'm Jim DiRigatis from WBEZ and Columbia College. Today we'll talk about
1: the legal and artistic ramifications of sampling. Plus, three decades after their formation, we'll talk about the 15th album from REM. That's coming up on Sound
3: Opinions. from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX you're listening to Sound Opinions
4: you can't touch this you can't touch this you can't touch this you can't touch this
1: That, of course, is MC Hammer's biggest hit, You Can't Touch This. Greg, why do we know this song? Why is it instantly recognizable? In large part, it's that signature bass line, which was sampled from Super Freak by Rick James. Those small bits of music, those samples, that's what we're going to focus on during today's show. As long as there has been music and art, there have been other musicians and artists sampling That original idea. What is originality? What is authenticity? These questions have become significant in the age of sampling, in large part because of the uh, digital revolution. The technology has put it in people's hands, starting in the late 70s and the 80s, in a way that it never was before. It's become an art in and of itself, creating great music, but also unleashing a flood of legal complications. We're going to play our favorite sample-based music a little later in the show. But first, we wanted to focus on the intellectual property argument. We're joined by Kembrew McLeod, who is a filmmaker and professor of communication studies at the University of Iowa. He produced a documentary called Copyright Criminals that examines the debate about sampling. Kembrew, welcome to Sound Opinions. Thanks for having me. What was your goal, Kembrew, for making this film?
5: We really wanted to tell the story of how this uniquely African-American art form and, and how these artists took a technology that wasn't really intended to do what it does now, which is copy pre-existing sounds from pre-existing records and make new sounds out of it. Uh, they did something with the technology that they weren't supposed to do, both kind of legally but also just in terms of the way the, the manufacturers created the equipment. They basically created a sampler, for instance, so that it could help out a studio engineer Get that perfect Phil Collins, you know, drum snare sound and so that they could preserve it so they wouldn't have to remike it. That was the purpose of samplers. And what's really interesting about what hip hop artists did with it is uh, they just completely reimagined this brand new technology. And they also just extended what African American music had been doing for decades, if not centuries. That is reappropriating, borrowing, recontextualizing pre-existing melodies lyrics, catchphrases, etc.
3: Well, I think all art uh, can be said to have done that, Kimbrough. I I think there's no doubt that there's a heavy tradition of sampling, whatever you want to call it, uh, borrowing, thievery. What was different here, and I think what was instructive about copyright criminals, especially for a lot of the members of our judicial community, for example, who are Mm -hmm. adjudicating these cases, talking about the idea of turntables as instruments, as opposed to these devices that can steal stuff from other people. The idea of theft versus the necessity of using what you have available, readily available, to create music on. And I think that's a really important point, the turntable as a musical instrument. Uh, Where do you see that sort of turning point beginning?
5: Well, it, it really happens, at least in the history of hip hop, it happens in the early 1970s when hip-hop DJs started veering away from what the traditional role of the DJ was, which was simply to select records and play whole songs, perhaps segue from one to the other. And instead, they reimagined the turntable. Instead of it being a, a thing that you consume music, they used it as a thing in which they could make music. And so they started isolating smaller and smaller passages from records. And then they figured out ways to literally, with their hands, construct these collages of sounds, uh, often, you know, highlighting and repeating breakbeats like just the the raw drum patterns or or a horn hit. And so they they literally put together a sonic collage in real time with their hands, just using two turntables and a mixer that allowed them to go cut back and forth from one turntable to the other.
1: One of the tragedies of the film, Kembrew, is the point that's made that some of the masterpieces that really set the mark for what could be done with a sampler, it takes a nation of millions to hold us back by Public Enemy, Mm -hmm. Three Feet High and Rising by De La Soul, Paul's Boutique Mm -hmm. by the Beastie Boys, could not be made today. Now imagine if the courts declared tomorrow that painters of the world, whether you're working in acrylics or oils or watercolors, you can no longer use the color blue. And yet that's essentially what's happened with the courts interacting with sampling.
5: Yeah, and that's that's kind of the sad part of the story we wanted to tell, which is basically at the point in which hip-hop was at a really important crossroads, the courts came in and basically tied the hands of these artists. So they didn't say, no, you can't sample. What they said is you have to get permission from all the copyright holders, the copyright owners, if you want to put out this record legally. And so what that meant was... It encouraged producers to take the easy route out when it comes to sampling. So it's a whole lot easier to just pay one copyright holder, like, say, Rick James, and loop the entire chorus of a song rather than Chuck D and Hank Shockley and the people from Public Enemy going to the dozens – no, not dozens, literally hundreds mm-hmm. of copyright holders uh, from which they quoted. now
4: because I stole beat. This is a sampling sport, But I'm giving it a new name. What you hear P.E., you know the time, now what in the heaven does a jury know about hell if I took it, but they just look at me like, hey, I'm on a mission, check it out, y'all, conditions ain't right, sitting like dynamite, gonna blow you up and it just might, blow up the bench in, judge the courtroom plus, like I got a mention, this court is dismissed, when I grab the mic, yo, play, what is this, what y'all think y'all doing bringing us
5: my co-author Peter DeCola crunched the numbers to find out what it would cost to release Fear of a Black Planet today. And this is from a book that's coming out on Duke University Press uh, in March 2011. Creative license, right? Creative license, yes. And basically, we want to take two albums that a lot of people, including myself, have written about and argued that it's impossible to release these albums. And that's a pretty common argument. But So we wanted to actually crunch the numbers and find out, you know, how much would it cost. And, for instance, Paul's Boutique by the Beastie Boys, which is another sample-heavy work of art with hundreds of samples in it. What's amazing about these records is they just—they didn't have any limitations. Uh, the, the only limitations that they were facing were technological limitations, and they did ingenious things, workarounds with the equipment to, to construct these collages. Well, anyway, it would basically cost, that is, the Beastie Boys and their record company would lose $20 million if <laughs> um, they released that album today. And wow. that is just assuming that they would be able to clear all the samples, which wouldn't be the case. There would be at least one, if not dozens of copyright holders who would resist and, and the album wouldn't be able to legally come out.
3: It's amazing because I think what your film also highlights is the fact that there's an economic underpinning to all of this. When the money started to be made in hip hop, these were successful albums, Paul's Boutique, Three Feet High and Rising, It Takes a Nation of Millions, they were making money. And suddenly the copyright holders say, hey, wait a minute, we, need, we want a chunk of that. That inspired the wave of lawsuits that occurred in the late 80s, early 90s. And then, as you point out in the film, a new industry emerges of sampling clearances. So it seems like a lot of lawyers mm-hmm. benefited from all this controversy. Those are the only people who really
5: did. Yeah, well, there's a lot of money flying around, like either with regard to lawsuits or just trying to clear samples. And... So, yeah, there's a whole lot of friction in the process of clearing samples. And what I mean by friction is just to get to the point where you can actually license a song, you have to go through so many different intermediaries, whether we're talking about managers and copyright holders for the underlying composition versus the copyright holders who own the sound recording. Often they're two different ones. And then if they're they're sampling a song that contains samples in that song, which is increasingly common. Then you have to go to those copyright holders also. So it just it's it's a really friction filled process that just simply made it impossible for those records uh, during the golden age of sampling and by, uh, in the late '80s for those records to ever be made again, or at least made and then distributed through conventional means. And what's interesting now is that mixtapes that you can download on the internet, or or albums like the Gray Album are easy to come by, so they haven't been legitimately released, but at least people can still hear this kind of music.
4: I'm not a writer, I'm a writer for myself and others. I say a big verse, I'm only big enough, my brother. Big enough my barrel, I'm big enough to do it. I'm that barrel, because I know my own flow is foolish. So the rings and things you sing about, bring them out. It's hard to yell when the barrel's in your mouth. I'm in new sneakers, dual seaters, few demons What more can I tell you? Let me spell it for you, W-I, devil up. Nobody truer than H-O-V. and I'm back for more New York the door. Business, to finish my business up.
3: but yet there is a certain amount of impunity coming back it seems almost you mentioned the gray album danger Mouse's conflation of the white album by the Beatles and the black album by Jay-z in 2004 released illegitimately huge Popularity on the rogue digital world. Now you've got Girl Talk having a very successful career, basically blatantly sampling copyrighted material and turning it into n- new music. <laughs> Is there evidence that you see of, of a turning point here where the industry is starting to come to terms with this art form and, you know, the fact that Girl Talk hasn't been sued yet? Uh, is that an indication that maybe the copyright law may be changing in the in the near future to adapt to where the art form is leading it?
5: Yeah. I, I mean, to put it bluntly and pessimistically, actually, I, I don't believe that. I don't see the law changing. Um, I don't think it's going to change at the legislative level at least not in any direction that would help samplers. And, and even with record companies, yes, some record companies are, you know, have chilled out about the fact that their songs might be included in mixtapes that are freely downloaded. But when it comes to the actual process of sample clearance, it's the market, quote-unquote, the market is failing. I, I don't see any movement in the direction of in- encouraging this kind of sample-heavy, collage-heavy creativity. Based on my interview research with over 100 artists um, and managers and people who clear copyrights, I conducted these interviews over the course of doing copyright criminals but also writing the book Creative License. And pretty much everyone I talked to said that the system is broken. They may disagree a little bit on how much it's broken, but they all agree that it's broken. And I just don't see any evidence that it's going to get any easier for um, people who sample in terms of the logistics, the administrative hassles of doing it. In fact, trying to clear some of the stuff for our film for copyright criminals, because we did have a rights clearance budget. I mean, that itself was just a complete nightmare <laughs> in in many instances. Don't get me started on Bridgeport music. <laughs> <laughs> Which
3: is uh, George Clinton's publisher, right?
5: It's the publisher that controls George Clinton's copyrights, but it's not George Clinton's publishing company. That is it's a typically sad story, you know. Through the course of 20th century American music, African American musicians have typically been ripped off, have had their copyrights stolen, and and so George Clinton is a victim of that. So he doesn't actually even own his own copyrights. In fact, he doesn't own the copyrights to many of his most important 1970 songs, and in fact, Bridgeport's sued about 700 people after it had been established in court that they did legally control the copyrights to those Parliament Funkadelic songs. And among the 700 or so artists that they sued was, yes, George Clinton for sampling himself. (laughs)
1: This is Sound Opinions, and we are talking with Kembrew McLeod. Now, Kembrew, you've had a hand in making copyright criminals. You've written two books on this issue. You think about it a lot. Mm -hmm. You've said the copyright system is broken. Let's
5: say we gave you the power to fix everything. What would the fix be? I think one way in which we can fix the system, the, the sample clearance system, is to really just look back 100 years, look back for previous models to follow. And 100 years ago, or in 1909, Cover songs were basically illegal because you had to negotiate with the copyright holder, and this is pre-fax machines, pre-email. Congress steps in and they enact the 1909 Copyright Act, which allows for people to cover songs, and Congress set the rate so that uh, copyright holders can't be asked for unreasonable amounts, and as long as you pay that amount – You get to cover someone else's song. And there's this rich tradition of cover songs throughout 20th century popular music. One of the reasons why we'll never see a cover song equivalent uh, license for sampling is because copyright holders are much more powerful as a lobby than they were 100 years ago. And they don't want to give up control. But if in in the imaginary like world where I rule the universe, Hmm. that seems like a pretty reasonable and fair way of dealing with this impasse.
3: Kimberly McLeod, the executive producer of uh, Copyright Criminals, thank you for being our guest on Sound Opinions.
5: Hey, thanks so much for having me.
6: You all tucked in? Here we go. Once upon a time, not long ago, when people wore pajamas and lived life slow, where laws were stern and justice stood, and people were behaving like they ought to good, there lived a little boy who was misled by another little boy, and this is what he said. Me and you tonight, we're gonna make some cash Robbing old
3: folks and making the dance Coming up, Jim and I will run down some of our favorite sample-based songs And later, we're gonna look at the latest release By one of the great rock bands of the last 30 years, R.E.M. That's in a minute on sound opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX
6: him and gave him a slap But little did he know the little boy was strapped The kid pulled out a gun, he said Why'd you hit me?
0: A
2: symphony, a to money,
1: you die. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott, and that is The Verve with their 1997 hit, Bittersweet Symphony. This show is all about samples. We just had a discussion of some of the legal ramifications. Now, Greg, you and I are going to go back and forth and choose some songs that we think illustrate sampling done well, or at least sampling uh, with interesting stories. The Verve song obviously qualifies. It is based around Andrew Lug Oldham, their manager, and an orchestral record he did wrote the scores for Rolling Stone's music played by orchestra. That was from The Last Time was the song. The Verve sampled it, wrote lyrics, recontextualized it for Bittersweet Symphony, but it became the center of a legal debate. They lost songwriting credit to the song. Uh, They had to give it to Jagger and Richards. And they were a little bitter about it. Richard Ashcroft, leader of The Verve, said, that is the best song Jagger and Richards have written in 20 years. And he pointed out it was their biggest hit since Brown Sugar. He was right. Meanwhile, Keith Richards, in his inimitable way, fired back, if The Verve can write a better song, then they can keep the money." Anyway, I want to start us off going back and forth, choosing some great sample songs by playing the first big hit by Beck, 1993, Loser. He wrote the song with the producer of his first album, one of the producers, Carl Stevenson. And obviously, you know, there's a lot of Beck original stuff in there, that slide guitar, the kind of loose hip-hop by way of the blues rhythm. There's a lot of originality. But there also is a sample. The drum track comes from a Johnny Jenkins cover of Dr. John's I Walk on Gilded Splinters from a pretty obscure 1970 album called Tauntaun Makoot. And during the break, there's also another sample, a bit of dialogue from a 1994 film called Kill the Moonlight. To me, it's really 100% original Beck, Mm -hmm. but there are these bits and pieces from other artists. And I remember when this came out, people were curious where, you know, what's going into Beck's crazy new musical stew. If any of them were tempted to go back and discover Johnny Jenkins to discover Dr. John, I think that's only a great thing. In any event, here is "Loser" by Beck on Sound Opinions.
0: The jockey with the plastic eyeballs, spray paint the vegetables. Dog food stalls with the beefcake paneos Kill the headlights and put it in neutral. Stock car flaming with a loser and the cruise control. Baby in Reno with the vitamin D. Got a couple of couches, sleep on the love seat. Someone keeps seeing I'm Cause one's got a weasel and others has got a flag One's on the pole, shoved the other in the bag With the rerun shows and the cocaine nose jug The daytime crap of the folk singer club. He hung himself with a guitar string, A slab of turkey neck and it's hanging from a pigeon wing But get-right if you can't relate Trade the cash for the beat, for the body, for the hate And my time is a piece of wax Falling on a termite It's choking on the splinters So uh,
1: That is back with loser. My
3: first choice for a great sample track. Greg, what have you got? Jim, I want to go back to the dawn of the sampling era, in what has been called, at least tongue in cheek, as the first rap song. Now there are many claims to that title, but this this song certainly has legitimacy in that area, and it comes from completely out of left field, from Canada, in fact. John Oswald, a Canadian composer saxophonist and media artist. He's well-known in academic circles, in avant-garde music circles. There's an extraordinary double CD out called Plunderphonics mm-hmm. uh, that documents his work in, in this area. He coined this term Plunderphonics to sort of describe his composing method. He basically creates new music out of previously existing recordings, some copyrighted material. In fact, the more egregious the copyright, the more fun he seems to have with it. In this case, in the song that I'm going to play, it's called Power. He recorded this in 1975, years before sampling was all over the hip-hop map. A combination of a radio broadcast by a southern preacher named Brother Shambach, and he combined it with samples of music from the band Led Zeppelin, those famous Satanists, as he called them. <laughs> he loved the juxtaposition of this fire and brimstone preaching with this allegedly satanic rock band. Oswald was also inspired by the MC5 record, uh, Kick Out the Jams. Uh, Brother J.C. Crawford would come on on stage and introduce the MC5, and there was sort of an element of that Southern preacher to him. Also the use of repetition, the word power. He was borrowing that idea from Andy Warhol's pop art, you know, this whole idea of cranking out those lithographs of soup cans, you know, sort of a machine-like repetition that he liked and used in this song as a chorus. And later on, obviously, that would become hugely popular in the hip-hop world in the sense of the loop that kept repeating over and over in a song. So here's John Oswald pioneering all of these little methodologies that would become standard issue on hip-hop recordings in the 80s and 90s. Remember, this was done in 1975. It's called Power by John Oswald on Sound Opinions.
2: And it shall remove now hear it Power! Power! catch it when god said something he can't take it back you can't take it back lord i got your number here you said you'd bless me going in and bless me coming out you said everything i put my hands on you would bless it shout amen, somebody. God said, I'll make you the head and not the tail. Everything you set your hands to, I will bless it if you will walk in my ways. But God is looking for a people who will learn how to take him at his word. I don't have to feel something to believe it. I don't have to look at something to believe it to do is see the word and if God said it let every man let every devil be a liar but let God be true he cannot take his word back turn around in your seat look at somebody and say do you know the devil's a liar
3: That is power from John Oswald, the founder of Plunderphonics, which laid the groundwork for the hip-hop revolution. Nice one, Greg. I'm going to come back to Chicago for my
1: next pick, the first single, the song that put Lupe Fiasco on the map. We just reviewed Lupe's third album last week, so this song was on my mind. But what a wonderful sample choice, and I think it illustrates how sometimes the best samples can come from really unexpected places. Kick Push is a song about a young African-American talking about how cool it is to ride a skateboard. Mm -hmm. Okay, kind of unexpected to begin with. But the sample comes from Mars. Apparently, Celeste Legaspi was a Filipino jazz singer. She recorded something, which I think was kind of a sample to begin with, the Bolero medley, fueled by these wonderful kind of Bolero Filipino jazz horns. (laughs) That's what Lupe loved. He heard those horns, fell in love with them. They become the engine that powers the skateboard of kick push. Talk about emerging of cultures from all different sources Unexpected. It's just such a breath of fresh air, and it remains so all these years after its release. Here is Lupe Fiasco on Sound Opinion.
7: Out. Uh, first got it when he was six, didn't know any tricks. Matter of fact, first time he got on it, he slipped. Landed on his hip and busted his lip. For a week, he had to talk with a list like this. Now we uh, can end the story right here. But shorty didn't quit. It was something in the air. Uh, yeah, he said it was something so appealing. He couldn't fight the feeling. Something about it. He knew he couldn't doubt it. It, couldn't understand it, brand it Since the first kickflip he landed Uh, labeled a misfit, a bandit Cocoon, cocoon, cocoon His neighbors couldn't stand it So, he was banished to the park Started in the morning, one stopped after dark Yeah, when they said it's getting late in here So I'm sorry young man, there's no skating in So we kick, push, kick, push Kick, push, kick, push Coast and the way roll just a rebel to the world with no place to go. And so we kick, push, kick, push, kick, push, kick, push, coast. So come and skate with me, just a rebel, looking for a place to be. So let's kick, and push, and coast. Mm, 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 mm. My man got a little older, became a better roller. No hell meant hell Ben on killing himself Is what his mama said But he was filling himself Got a little more swag In his style Met his girlfriend She was clapping In the crowd Love is what What was happening To him now uh,
3: That is Lupe Fiasco With a brilliant sample There on Kick Push On Sound Opinion Courtesy of Jim DeRigatis Jim, great choice In any discussion of sampling and the use of recorded material in inventive ways, recontextualizing it, reconfiguring it, we could not do that discussion without at least mentioning Public Enemy. And I'm going to give them some props right now. I think that production team, the so-called bomb squad, Hank Shockley, Keith Shockley, Eric Vietnam Sadler, Chuck D. himself involved with the group at times, too, on the production side, reinvented the idea of sampling in the 80s, the sophistication of those early Public Enemy records was at, at a new level from everything else that had come before it in hip-hop. The intricacy of those recordings is what I'm talking about. Now, they were working from the same area of music that a lot of the early hip-hop groups were working from as well. Early soul, early funk, but they were adding other elements to it. I mean, you would hear Slayer samples in there. You would hear avant-garde jazz recordings. You would hear music concrete in the way that they would create almost a collage as opposed to just a simple A meets B creating C. I mean, there would be the entire alphabet in a, in a vertical structure there in the middle of those songs where I, it was impossible I, to tell what was what.
1: I always said there's as much Stockhausen as Superfly <laughs> in, in, in Public Enemy.
3: And, Jim, I, I don't know about you, but I remember listening to those early records and it almost felt like vertigo-inducing. Mm-hmm. You got dizzy listening to them because, you know, they, they would do a track like Bring the Noise, and it really was, it did feel that way, like you were in the middle of a hurricane, And I think it was intentional. They were talking about black militancy. They were talking about racism in America in very strident terms. They were updating the rhetoric of Malcolm X and bringing it into a musical context. They were talking about revolution, but not in a violent street level. Let's get out the machine guns. They were talking about an assault of words, and they wanted to surround it with music that was equally forceful. So on the track I'm going to play, it's from their third album, Fear of a Black Planet, the track Welcome to the Terror Dome. Just dense with samples. We've got everything from... Curtis Blow to the Soup Dragons in here. We've got Cool in the Gang. We've got the Jackson 5. We've got a Temptation sample from Psychedelic Shack all the way through it, but you may not even recognize it. It's just a little tiny snippet of it. If you know the track intimately, you'll know what I'm talking about, but you really have to listen for it to pick it out and to see how they're using it. Just a little bit of a guitar riff in there that's barely a few seconds long. It's intricate. It's brilliant. It's hard-hitting. It is the height. Of hip hop sampling in 1990. It is Welcome to the Terror Dome from Public Enemy and the production team, the Bomb Squad on Sound Opinions.
4: I got so much trouble on my mind. Refuse to lose. Here's your ticket. Here the drama get wicked. The clue to you to push the back, the black attack So I sack it, tap, and slap the Mac. Now I'm running like on my kit. Here my favouritism Rolo never before. Me go solo, laser Anastasia major, razor, blazer, brain, and trainer. The way I'm living, forgiving, what I'm giving up. X on the flex, living there. I don't know about later, and for now, I know how to avoid the paranoid. Man, i had it up to here, yeah, I wear, got I'm going in fear. Rhetoric, sad and red, just a bit ago, and I'm quick to go sign the hard rammer. From we'll getting jerked, changing some ways The way back in the better days Raw metaphysically bold Never follow the code Still drop the load Never question what I am God knows ha, course it's coming from the heart What I got, better get some Get on up, hustler of culture Snake bitten, been spit in the face huh. But the rhymes keep fitting respect been given, how's your living? Now I can't protect, I've paid off feedback. Check the record and reckon Inintentional wreck Played off some intellect. Made the call, took the fall, broke the laws. Knocked my fourth and they'd fallen off. Known as fair square throughout my years. Saw I growl at the living tower. Black to the bone, my home is your home. But well, welcome to the Terradome.
1: That is Welcome to the Terradome by Public Enemy on Sound Opinions. Greg's pick for a fine sampling track. To make a comment about sampling or to share any of your sound opinions on the air... Call 888-859-1800. You can also email interact at soundopinions.org or follow the conversation at facebook.com slash soundopinions. Greg and I will be back on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX with a review of the 15th album by R.E.M.
4: My was on record, So now I go <laughs> The fiction, ain't no fiction. So-called chosen, frozen, apology made to whoever pleases. Still they got me like Jesus. i rather sing, breathe think, reminisce. Bound above the while I'm in sync. Every brother ain't a brother. Cause a color just as well to be undercover. Backstabbed, Grab the flag from the back of the lab. Told the rap, get off the rag. Sad to say I got sold down the river. Still and I deliver Never to say I never knew or had a clue Word was heard, was hard on a boulevard Lies, in facing Treats of hate who celebrate with sin A rope, do dope, the evil With righteous bombing and weaving And let the good get even Come on down But well, welcome to the terror dome
3: Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRogatis, and we are talking about the history of sampling, playing some of our favorite tunes. That is one of them that you're hearing right now from a tribe called Quest, Can I Kick It?, from their 1990 debut album, famously sampling Lou Reed's Walk on the Wild Side. In addition, you hear samples of Dr. Buzzard's original Savannah band in there, that sign guitar snippet, and there's a little bit of Lonnie Liston-Smith's jazz organ in there. Sample based composing Jim it's an incredible art form we're playing some of our favorites what have you got next well greg when i said i wanted to play groove is in the heart the 1990
1: smash it by delight there was some groaning from our producers oh that's kind of predictable but my point in choosing this track we we know this song well there's not a wedding since that hasn't played this (laughs) song but have you ever stopped to think about the ingredients that went into it now there's some original playing on here parliament funkadelic legend bootsy collins plays bass cannot go wrong with live bootsy and talk about a tribe called quest q-tip provides the rap on this tune but what Were the bits and pieces that went into the song? I'm just going to talk about a few of them, okay? Mm. This isn't even the complete list. There's an obscure sample from a 1969 album called The Art of Belly Dancing (laughs) that starts things off. uh, We're going to dance and have some fun.
0: We're going to dance. We're going to dance. We're going to dance and have some fun.
1: Herbie Hancock's Bring Down the Birds, the bass line, is in here. Vernon Birch, obscure soul artist, who had an album called Get Up. There's some drums, there's some crowd noise, and the slide whistle comes from Vernon. Now, Ray Barreto, an album called Right On from 1972. He provided the cowbell the TV theme song from Green Acres with with Ava Gabor singing I looped becomes the I, 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 I sample, right? Ralph McDonald, Jam on the Groove from a 1976 album called Sound of a Drum provides some of the percussion. Billy Preston, the fifth Beatle, Uptight from his album from 1966 provides some of the music under the breakbeat the Q-tip is rapping over. And then we get a drum roll, just the roll, from the Headhunters' God Make Me Funky album from 1975. And all of that. that on top of a little bit of tambourine which is uh, played by one tina turner you ever heard of her and you have just a few of the samples i mean you know you have to really spend a lot of time to be that creative to put together a pastiche that complicated and still make it sound completely fresh and original which i think it does the song is more than 20 years old still sounds like a breath of fresh air here's delight on sound opinions Light. Groove is in the heart on Sound Opinions.
3: Greg, you have one more sampling choice for us? I do indeed, Jim. I've been uh, working through a progression here of the eras of sampling, and I, this is, I think this latest one exemplifies what the innovations were in sampling during the 90s and 2000s. All the legal ramifications that we've been talking about here, some is it legal, is it not, pushed the art of sampling further underground in the 90s. In other words, they couldn't bring back those James Brown records they loved, their Temptations records, uh, Stevie Wonder records, and recontextualize them because lawyers were going to come after you for some money. So they had to go deeper underground. The source material became really obscure. And the master of that was one Josh Davis, better known as DJ Shadow. He was part of that Northern California artist collective and label Soul Sides later Quantum that produced a series of great hip hop records in the last 20 years DJ Shadow's 1996 debut album Introducing is still one of the most mind-blowing sample-based records ever made and the reason for that is is this guy dug really deep I mean he went to not just the traditional funk and soul vocabulary but we're talking about American and European progressive rock bands of the 60s and 70s psychedelic rock He sampled violins and guitar parts from singer-songwriter records. I mean, he was looking at sources that most hip-hop producers would look askance at, like, that's not cool, that's not funky, I can't do anything with that. And he created these amazing soundscapes. The track I'm going to play from introducing is called Stem. He initially thought about putting some vocals on it, but then said, you know, they don't really work, I'm going to wipe them off and just present it as an instrumental. What a smart decision that was. This record actually went into the top 40 on some European charts when it was released. It is a beautiful yet disturbing piece of music created entirely out of samples by DJ Shadow. It's called Stem on Sound Opinions.
7: I can lay right down I'll
3: tell you children, i tell right down That is stem from DJ Shadow on Sound Opinions If you want to see our entire list of sample based songs go to soundopinions.org That is Mine, Smell Like Honey, the uh, new single from R.E.M.'s latest album, Collapse Into Now, 15th studio album from this veteran band from Athens, Georgia. To paraphrase guitarist Peter Buck, he called them the acceptable edge of the unacceptable. They rose to arena rock level with a series of fine albums on the independent IRS label, then signed for big bucks to Warner Brothers, went on to make their biggest hit in the early 90s for that label, Losing My Religion, and then created a masterpiece, Automatic for the People, one of the great albums of that decade. Then a major rupture in the band. One of the four founding members, drummer Bill Berry, left the band. That put the band into a spin for the last 15 years or so, and they've never really recovered. They got back some of the democracy in the band with their hardest rocking record in a long time in 2008, Accelerate. And now they're back with Collapse Into Now. We're going to review the record in a second, but let's play a track from it first. It's Discoverer from R.E.M. on Sound Opinions. Hey
2: baby, this is not a challenge, just means that I love you as much as I always said I did. I was wrong. Stupid.
1: That is Discoverer, the lead track from R.E.M.'s 15th album, Collapse Into Now, here on Sound Opinions. And, Greg, it sort of illustrates both what's good and what's bad about this latest piece of product from R.E.M. Incorporated. First, the good. That primal thump of the Tom Toms that Bill Berry excelled on. It ain't Berry. But, you know, it's the next best thing? We have Peter Buck's mandolin and then the guitar chiming over it. We have that wonderful Mike Mills bass line that rises up and offers a little bit of a harmonic counterpoint and then Stipe comes in with the growl. I kept playing this in the car as I was driving around with my wife who, who grew up, like I did, with R.E.M., loving R.E.M., And I can't sing. I mean, I've documented that on this show. And I kept adding these parts. I kept adding the missing berry parts. You got Mills doing the high harmonies. You got Stipe with that wonderful baritone. There is an essential part missing. I'm one of those who think they shouldn't have continued without this essential fourth ingredient in the band. But what's more, as I look back on what has been one of the most important bands in my life, No kidding, no exaggeration. They gave us eight flawless albums between 1983 with Murmur and 1992 with Automatic for the People. It has been 20 years since, and they've given us seven albums, and I don't think I would really go to reach for any of those before the first eight. We have Michael Stipe singing again and again, wondering what the kids like these days. Now, I know he's kidding. There's also him singing it's just like me to overstay my welcome. You know, Michael, laughing at it doesn't make it less true. <laughs> this is true. The heart has gone out of this band. Part of it is the producer. Jack Lively is perfectly competent, but he's not great. If they had the guts to work with somebody like a Danger Mouse or a Brian Eno or Daniel Anois, the team that U2 works with, to have them challenge themselves and get out of the box they've been in for 20 years, they might give us greatness. As it is, they're giving us little bits and pieces from throughout their career If you liked R.E.M. ever, you're going to kind of relate to parts of this album, but you're certainly not going to get excited about
3: it. This is Burn It, but boy, I know they can do better. Well, Jim, they've been in a struggle for the last 15 years about trying to identify who they are again. I think the Barry loss just keeps getting magnified larger and larger with each passing year, how essential that guy was to the band and the chemistry. That those guys had This is the Return to Form record Right Everybody's been arguing With me the last week or so About my review In the Tribune Where I've been Sort of mocking it A little bit Because I see it In that school of thought You know The Rolling Stones Made Some Girls In 1978 Return to Form U2 made All That You Can't Leave Behind In 2000 Return to Form The U2 record Doesn't hold up for me The Stones record did Because the songwriting Ultimately was there It was almost like A last gasp A signal That we've really Run out of ideas So now we're going to Go back to Quote unquote what we did best which is okay high harmonies by mills that clanging buck guitar great sound no doubt about it and then you've got the the michael stipe baritone you nail it on the head though i'm not sure that stipe has anything left to sing about anymore people talk about uberlin as being sort of a, a great moment i just hear drive rewritten there alligator, aviator, autopilot, antimatter. What a (laughs) stupid song. Lenny Bruce, Lester Bangs, Cheesecake Boom. It is a third-rate knockoff of It's the End of the World as We Know It and I Feel Fine. There's a few songs I really love. You know, when I first listened to this record, I thought, hey, yeah, this sounds really good. Well, the reason it does is that it reminds me of something they did in 1986. And you're right. I would rather play the record they made in 86. Collapse into now. Some decent stuff, not great stuff. It's a Burn It record for me as well. (laughs)
1: So, though it pains us, that is a double burn-it for R.E.M. Greg, what do we have on the show next week?
3: Jim, next week we will be back from the South by Southwest Music Conference in Austin, Texas to give our annual report on what's next in rock music. Woo! As always, we have some thank yous to say
1: on the way out. Our intern is Nick Myers. Our producers are Robin Lim and Jason Saldana. And our fearless leader, our executive producer, is Tori southside Malatia.
3: opinions, everyone's a critic. So now it's time to hear what you have to say.
8: New messages. Hi, this is Jan Weller calling from Chicago. I have to say that I just don't understand the appeal of the Vaseline's, at least based on their appearance on your program. I found the songs puerile Anyway, I enjoy listening to your program, even though I disagree with you quite often, but this was just a waste of airtime. Thank you. Feel so good, it must be bad for me. Feels so good, it
0: must be bad for me. Feels so good, it must be bad for me. Let's do it, let's do it again.
8: Gentlemen, thank you so much for the show on the Vaseline. Ms. McKee and Mr. Kelly are uh, such talent and that you are helping to let people know about them is God's work.
0: Help me help me my resolve is breaking i'm given up and i'm going down i've done too much of all this stuff that i was born do not touch it Feels so
7: good it must be bad for me it feels so good
8: Good. it must be bad for me. Let's do it. Let's do it again. Hi, this is Pauly D in Philly. I just heard the um, playing of East West Butterfield Blues band from back in the sixties. Very interesting to hear that again after all these years. But I'm reminded that Mike Bloomfield had with him playing guitar during that incarnation of Butterfield's band Elvin Bishop, after Elvin Bishop. A fellow named Buzz Featon played guitar with Butterfield, and he has stayed with it and gotten better and better and better year after year after year. Played with Stevie Wonder, played with his own band, Larson Featon Band, had a hit back in the 80s, and has just continued. Thank you very much. Take care. Talk to you later. Hi, yeah, this is um, Gabrielle Bond. I'm calling from Washington, D.C., and I'm calling in to respond to the critique you all gave for Adele's new album, 21. And I listen to y'all's podcast every week, and I find you all funny, and I do disagree, but I don't think I've ever disagreed with Jim's opinion more than with Adele's album. I don't understand how you could completely trash it. She hasn't gone Hollywood at all. She just sticks to the formula, and her formula is love songs and sorrow. I don't particularly think just because she works with pop songwriters that makes the album bad. I mean, she's got a voice from God, and she uses it, and everyone relates to what she sings about. And sometimes I think you all let your hate for Rick Rubin and pop writers cloud your judgment a little bit. She's awesome. Her voice is awesome. The songs are much more poppy, but still she doesn't lose any of the Adele flavor from the first album. Um, I had to call in because I will fight to the death for this album. Give up the good work, or the disagreeable work, gets it were, and I'll keep listening. Bye-bye. Never mind, I'll find
2: someone like you No more messages.
1: To share your opinions on Sound Opinions, call 888 859 1800. We'll be back next week on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.
6: Sometimes it lasts but sometimes it does